Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. He's handsome, assertive, a killer dresser, and he can teach you how to make a Negroni in just three minutes. My guest this week is Stanley Tucci, the Academy Award-nominated star of The Lovely Bones, The Devil Wears Prada, Julie and Julia, and so many more, the writer and director of the legendarily heartwarming food dramedy Big Night, and the host of the excellent travel and food show Searching for Italy. Stanley Tucci does it all. What's he been up to lately? Well, he's one of the stars of Citadel. That's a mega-budget action TV show streaming now on Amazon Prime. The premise is this. Citadel is an international spy agency, or at least was an international spy agency. The show starts after Citadel has been taken down by a crime syndicate called Manticore. These are just classic action movie names. Tucci plays Bernard. He's a tech genius who went into hiding after Citadel collapsed. And when the show starts, Bernard is reconnecting with Mason Kane, one of Citadel's top agents. Their mission is to take down Manticore. But there's a catch. Mason has no idea that he used to be a spy. When Citadel fell, his memories were erased. He got a new identity. In this scene, Bernard and Mason are out on a mission, but Mason's nervous, so Bernard decides to lend him a hand. There's a secret Manicor tech lab on the top floor of that tower. The case is in their lab, but the good news is I'm a genius, and I hacked into their servers, so your biometrics under an alias are baked into the backdoor security system. Put this on and lose that. This is the moment where I'm going to raise my hand and say I need a little more clarity in the plan here. You don't need to know the plan. I definitely need to know. How could I not need to know the plan? Look, I'll guide you, okay? You just listen to me, and I will get you through this. Stanley Tucci, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. You're very good at this. You're very good at entertainingly offering exposition (laughs) (laughs) you're very good at at wearing spy outfits um all this stuff you're very good at was this your career goal that one day you would you'd hit 60 and you'd be like it's on now i'm getting arm muscles yeah i gotta be a spy yeah uh no Uh, i the thing this is a thing that just came along you know a couple years ago and I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, I knew the Russos were involved. I knew that Richard was playing the lead. I liked the character. It was fun. And and also, we, we shot the whole first bit of it in London, uh, outside of London. So it was 40 minutes from my house. I thought, oh, this is a great job. And then things were things were then, you know, additional photography was done. All that stuff was done later, about a year or more later, and it turned into what it is now, and yeah, but what, it's exciting. It was exciting when you're making something fun like this. What parts of the process of making it are similarly fun, 
and what are the the hardest hard work parts of making something like this? The, the hard the hard part. I didn't really like Richard and Priyanka had a lot of action stuff to do, so that's that's grueling. You know, that's hard on your body and stuff. But for me, it was you know, for me, it wasn't really that much. You know, I was in and out. Those guys and Richard in particular is in like every scene. Um, uh, you know, the the only thing uh, what what's difficult about filmmaking or TV making or whatever is is the waiting. That's the hardest part. It's just waiting. Are you also, I imagine, trying to stay ready enough to go do art when they're done setting up the lights or whatever? Yeah, I mean, you just have to, you're always ready, so it's very hard to concentrate on anything. So when you go to your trailer... You know, it's very hard to, unless you have a really, really interesting book. You're just sitting there sort of languishing. You can't really concentrate on anything because people are constantly knocking on your door going, five minutes, or do you have that thing um, that we gave you the other day, that prop that, oh, yeah, it's over there. And so you never never get any time to concentrate on anything else. You just sort of sit there, you know, watch YouTube or something, and, you know, I watch... um, I watch cooking shows a lot. On YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, I watch like, yeah, like cooking videos and stuff. It relaxes me. What kind of thing do you like to watch on YouTube? Let's get more specific. I like this show, um, it's not so much here in America, well, YouTube is everywhere, but it's uh, Pasta Grannies, it's called. Do you know this? No. And it's it's made by a British woman. I've got some enthusiastic and, nods outside oh, the studio yeah, here. It's some cool. big it's, pasta granny heads. It's amazing. Each bit is like six minutes long. And, you know, it's there's no production value or anything like that. It's just really interesting. They basically get... I don't think there's a woman in it under the age of 75 or 80. And they just go to all different parts of Italy, and these people just make pasta. And, you know, the recipe with pasta. It's really interesting because she's, you know, the woman is going to different regions of Italy and sort of explaining very briefly why they're making that pasta up in, Italy, in you know, Brescia or wherever. When you were a kid, how much did you know about, uh, you're Italian-American, your mm-hmm. grandparents were born in Italy, right? Yeah. How much did you know from growing up in Westchester? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. In Westchester County in New York about what the different ways of being Italian were, what the difference was, or was everyone just Italian to you? No, no, no. No, it was very different. Uh, You know, we were, I suppose at that time, more of a minority Italian-Americans in that part of Westchester, whereas lower Westchester was, there were quite a huge number of Italian-Americans. And to me, it had to do with, you know, there were those guys who, you know, they were sort of like made a show of being Italian-American or something. Do you know what I mean? In a thuggish way. That sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. And and also, I mean, it was interesting for me because I went and lived in Italy when I was like 12, 13 years old. And so I learned how to speak Italian. So then when I heard people like pronounced or the way Italian Americans would say certain words, I was like, 
what word is that? Like, what, that's not even close to. Are we talking specifically about that thing where they drop the vowel at the well, end yeah, of the word? Well, yeah, which is very common. Because in that's, that part of the country? Yeah, because in the, in the south of Italy, that's what they do, right? So the farther south you go, the less it sounds like real Italian, right? Or what is like, you know, the way they might speak in Florence or Naples or rather uh, Milan or something. So the, the Italian-Americans, that became... It became a, a real bastardization of Italian. And so it was it was taken to an extreme. So when you hear a Roman speak, you know, it's very different than you hear somebody from Milan speak. But you still know they're speaking Italian. It's very much who they are. Whereas, you know, in America, it just got completely perverted. So you'd hear people, you know, instead of capacola, they say gabagool, you know, and you're like, What's that? I don't even know what that is. Do you know what I mean? So there was that. To be fair, gabagool, very fun word. The very fun word. Um, but, yeah, so that was just a product of, and that was the way they spoke. And they would, you know, they, they didn't. So f that was the difference. Um, I think the, the real difference for me was that, you know, my parents were, so like, they were so, they were very, very interested in their, heritage and they really like championed it and it was very important for them to know where we came from who we came from and I think going to Italy was really important for my dad because he studied art at the academia for a year he took a sabbatical it was really important for him to show us really where we came from um, and it was it was it was a great great gift it was I mean a great gift that's not always the case with the first generation of an immigrant family born in the United no, States. No, it's not. No, they they normally don't encourage that. I mean, in fact, a lot of immigrants, the the, the you know the first generation, so the the grand. I'm never quite sure which is which, but right. so my. <laughs> That's why I added those extra yeah, words. Yeah, I realized I on my way no, in. No one knows what it is. Yeah, um, but the it wasn't encouraged in a lot of households to to speak Italian. Because you wanted to assimilate, you wanted to do the complete opposite. You wanted to really deny your your ethnicity, um, and other families didn't feel that way. How did that reveal itself in your house when you were a kid? No, it was we were very proud of being Italian, very proud of it. We didn't speak Italian. My father, my mom, did, they would speak it. They could speak a dialect. Uh, they could speak it like when they spoke to their parents. They could speak a dialect, but everybody spoke English. Uh, it was only when we went to Italy that I didn't speak a word of Italian until I went to Italy. What was it like to meet family members that you didn't know uh, who were living in such a different place from where you lived? It was fascinating. You know, it was really only, you know, it was like not even 30 years after the war had ended, you know. And, you know, there were people down there in Chitanova where my mother's family's from, you know, still living like with dirt floors, um, and everyone wore black because the fa you always wore black when a family member died. But the families were so big; somebody was dying all the time, so you just wore black all the time. Um, it was the complete opposite of anything I'd ever known. Our family was doing quite well. My mother's family was doing quite well. They had a a business where they sold agricultural machines and stuff like that and they had like a garage and stuff like that and and they were doing quite well and still are 
Um, but there was real poverty there at that time. Um, it's still very poor. I think it might be, still be the poorest region of, of Italy and corrupt. So it was, but it was fascinating meeting them. I couldn't really understand everybody because they had a Calabrese dialect. It wasn't just scary and overwhelming? Um, no. No, it wasn't. It was fascinating. You know, I was with my parents. I felt incredibly safe. I, you know, no, it was, it was kind of cool. I was ready to go home at the end of the year, nine months, however long we were. I was ready to go home, see my friends. Did you miss, like, baseball or hot dogs or I missed peanut butter peanut butter at the time you couldn't get that stuff in Italy you know Italy didn't you know didn't have anything it wasn't like it is today where you can get anything anywhere all the time um, you couldn't there were no American products there yeah hot dogs I wanted a hot dog peanut butter peanut butter and jelly <laughs> so much more with Stanley Tucci still to come stay with us it's bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with actor Stanley Tucci. He's the host of the travel show Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. He also currently stars on the action series Citadel. What are you eating for breakfast, Stanley Tucci? Depends. Sometimes I just have some oatmeal, and then I'll have, like, I have eggs, like scrambled eggs. A little piece of toast. But does your eating reach its apex at nighttime or in the middle of the day? Nighttime. Yeah, it's a progressive. Unless I go out for a big lunch or something. I do like big lunches, like on a weekend. I love that. Uh, I like to make a big lunch, especially in the summers. Like, that's just so, so much fun. But also, I love having people over to dinner and doing all that. But, yeah, during the... It gets bigger and bigger. I mean, they say you're not supposed to eat a lot late at night, but I don't know. In, tell, the, tell the Italians, the Spanish, and the French that. Did you have the experience of having food in your lunchbox that other kids thought was weird? Without question. I wrote about it in this book that I wrote last year, and uh, my, I could eat an enormous amount of food. I had very fast metabolism. And so I would bring, like, eggplant parmigiana, parmigiana um, sandwiches, like on a half a loaf of Italian bread. I would bring scrambled eggs with peppers and potatoes on bread as a sandwich. I would bring... We never brought pasta or anything like that. Uh, but it was all, like, sandwiches and stuff. You know, and fruit and dessert. Then I'd come home and eat more. Then I'd have dinner. Then I'd eat again before I went to sleep, like Velveeta sandwiches or something. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, I just ate everything. I just ate everything. What did your family think of your bottomless quality? They were like, "Keep eating." You know, there was no. It, you know, it was it was a gift. <laughs> <laughs> did you always eat everything? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I was very, I was uh, pretty adventurous. I, I was happy to try just about anything. You didn't really start cooking seriously, like as a life project, <laughs> um, until you made Big Night, right? Like it was, 
Not that you weren't cooking before. But... No, but I wasn't. I mean, I really learned a lot doing Big Night. But it's only, I have to say, in the last probably 10, 10, 10 12 years where I've really, really learned a lot more. Uh, and my wife, Felicity, is a great cook. And she's taught me a lot. When you made Big Night, mm-hmm. you co-wrote the movie, mm-hmm. co-directed it. Mm-hmm. Was it something that you had always wanted to make a film about, or did you just one day realize, oh, gosh, I know what's really important to me, not eating spaghetti and risotto together? <laughs> <laughs> I just, well, I'm just, I mean, it's just it's not what I expected. But I get a side of spaghetti with this, right? Why? Well, no. I thought all main courses come with spaghetti. Well, some, yes, but you see, risotto is rice, so it is a starch, and it doesn't go really with pasta. But I don't... Honey, honey, order a side of spaghetti, that's all. And I'll eat your meatballs. Yeah, he'll have the meatballs. Well, um, the spaghetti comes without meatballs. There are no meatballs with the spaghetti? No, sometimes spaghetti likes to be alone. I think we wanted to tell the story. Part of the story is about the role of the artist in society. Now, I know that sounds a bit pretentious, but that is a, a, that really is a, a big sort of point of the film. How does a person who is devoted to their art, and in this case, the art is edible... Um, how do they exist when they're not appreciated, when they can't get that foot in the door? And, of course, you could make the movie about a musician, you could make the movie about a painter, you could... But for some reason, we thought, oh, food, you know. But I was writing it. See, when I was writing it, it really was a comedy at first I was writing. I didn't know what I was writing. And I asked my cousin to help me, and then... We started, it was like a farce at one point. And then we decided that it needed, it, it was going in a different direction. We were like, well, maybe it's more serious. And then we came up with what we came up with. So you describe Big Night as being about the challenge of an artist and, you know, how to be an artist in the world. Part of that in the movie is that we're talking about immigrants and their the challenge to their art is Americanism. It's people. It's a lady wanting to order risotto and spaghetti together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was also in your mind. Without question. Yeah, the, the, there's a bastardization of, you know, anything ethnic when people go to another country. It's not just America either. People will make compromises, and sometimes too, too much. Um, but... They need to make a living. So, you know, when you see Italian-American food, when you see Italian food, it's very different. Italian-American food is larger portions. Uh, There are dishes that are completely made up that aren't Italian. There'll be huge amounts of sauce. Whereas when you go to Italy, you're getting just a little bit of sauce. You're getting exactly the amount of sauce that you need for that dish. That pasta isn't this enormous bowl of pasta because you know there's another course that's coming. So everything is in proportion. So there are those changes. And, of course, you know, depending on where an Italian would would settle in America, 
they're let's say an Italian restaurateur would settle, they're gonna they're gonna adapt their dishes for that for that area. If you settle in the south, you'll probably end up using more spice. You know, you end up using who knows. In the north, you'll end up doing something different. California end up doing something different. Um, and they do it to cater to. I mean, now people are more aware. I think particularly in major cities, people are more aware that someone is doing authentic Italian cooking. And people now want to flock to that, which I think is a good thing. Did you feel as passionately about acting as um, Tony Shalhoub's character in that movie feels about food? Yeah, I did. Yeah, without question. Yeah. When did you figure that out? Oh, very early on. Very early on. I always felt passionately about it, which was good. But also, I got in my own way. You know, when you sometimes, just like that character, he's myopic. He's not movable. And you can't be like that. You have to have flexibility. How very early on are we talking about? I mean, mean, we're talking about when you were nine years old or when you were 21 years old? No, no, when I graduated university. It was too, you know, I took myself too seriously. Um, It didn't mean that I, I didn't want to do comedy i did comedies that's not the, that's not what i'm talking about I mean, sometimes i would you know you think about things too much and you and you can if you think about things too much it just becomes an intellectual exercise what's an example of that it's hard to say um i always wanted to be better than i was and i think one of the things that you make a mistake that young actors make a mistake doing is trying to sort of look at other people's performances and go like, oh, I can do that. I think I know how to, how he, that's a huge mistake. It's just, you have to be who, who you are and, and do it the way you want to do it. You can look at other people and say, oh, that's beautifully subtle, but you can't try to mimic them. If you do that, it's disastrous. I want to ask you, as a guy who's Italian-American, you made a whole television show about Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful television show. Thank it was you. Really good. Like my stepmother is Irish, mm-hmm. and there is nothing on earth that she has more contempt for than Irish American stuff. Like she just yeah <laughs> hates it all so much. Okay, <laughs> it just makes her so mad. Like you know, river dance or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, I wonder what it's like for you to have tried to, uh, I mean, A, to have lived in Italy for a year as a kid, mm. which is an experience not many Italian American people get to get to have, no. but also as an adult to have an identity and make work that's so closely tied to Italy. Yeah. Um, which is a, you know, it's a whole other thing from italian America. It's very different. It's very different. But one of the things that I'm really happy about is that the show, first of all, the show became incredibly successful. You know, I never anticipated it would be this successful. You know, I, I, I came up with the concept of it like 15, 16 years ago. And CNN had come to me about five years ago and said, do you have any ideas for a show? And I gave them three different ideas, and this was one of them. And they saw their eyes light up and go like, 
we're going to Italy to eat, you know. They're like, we like this one better than the Velveeta sandwich yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the documentary about cancer treatments. They were like, no, I don't think so. Um, but they were great, and they really, you know, put themselves behind it, and they were great. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to kind of dispel the myths of Italy. Do you know what I mean? That a lot of Italian-Americans have, which is everybody's hugging each other, everybody's... And part, we did that partly in Big Night, too. If you notice, the brothers never touch each other until the end. And they touch each other very uncomfortably. Like, they're not, you know... Because this idea that Italians are always hugging each other and they're happy all the time and the sun is shining, they're eating pizza and pasta, that's not the case. Sometimes it's the case, but not always. And so I wanted to show that, you know, Italy isn't just pizza and pasta and sunshine. It's much more complex than that. And it only became a, a, a united country or a republic in 1861. Um, so the, the fact that Italian-Americans are now those who have seen the show, so many of them, when I'm walking around, and even when I'm in Italy, they're like, we're here because of you. We have always wanted to come, and we never thought about it. We, you know, we were too afraid to come or whatever. We, didn't, we just thought now is the time to do it. And they'll follow like where we went in the show. They'll go and follow that kind of you know, trajectory in one region or two regions or whatever. And that makes me really happy because I think that it's opening up a, a new way of looking at Italy as opposed to just hopping on a bus and taking some sort of, you know, tour. There's, they're, really, they're really doing it. And they're, they're, they understand, like, the genesis of pizza. How did pizza start? And, and how different pizza is. I mean, that, it, for me, that's important. But also, what forces formed and created that dish? What were they, what political forces, what religious forces, what socioeconomic forces, what um, geographic forces formed the way those people eat in Naples and why they eat that? We've got to go to a quick break. We'll continue my conversation with Stanley Tucci in just a minute. He was diagnosed with cancer a few years back. He only recently recovered. He is, of course, a food nut and radiation treatments changed his sense of taste forever. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Trans representation in media is at an all-time high with trans entertainers gracing the screens large and small. But trans voices, especially black trans voices, are rarely centered in our own stories. That's why we bring you a new limited series called We See Each Other, the podcast, co-hosted by me, journalist, and better half of the Max Fun Podcast, Fanti, Travel Anderson, and me, award-winning journalist and media personality, Shar Jossel. All of it is based on my book, We See Each Other, A Black Trans Journey Through TV and Film. Now listen, folks, we're having a very different kind of conversation. It's giving kitchen table talk. Mm-hmm. We get into the discourse. Honey, tune into We See Each Other the podcast at maximumfun.org or wherever you get slayworthy audio. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with actor, director, and writer Stanley Tucci. You've seen him in The Lovely Bones, The Hunger Games, Spotlight, and in the acclaimed film Big Night, which he also wrote and directed. His latest project is Citadel, the spy thriller TV show, streaming now on Amazon Prime. 
Do you still have the metabolism that you described in your adolescence? Are you still a bottomless pit? Look, I have a faster metabolism now because I went through high-dose radiation five years ago. That increases your metabolism. I lost 35 pounds. I was about 168 pounds or something like that, which actually was a little too, when I look at it, it wasn't, you know, heavy. It was just, it just looked not great because I'm small. You know, I'm not, I'm, and, um, but yes, so I did that. When I lost that weight and muscle, it took a long time to come back. And it seems that I'm now at the weight where basically I'm going to be, which is, which is about 10 pounds more than I weighed when I was in high school. And that's fine with me. I think it looks better. That's all bicep. It's all bicep. And I work out, but I work out like a, I love working out. Like, uh, I, if I go more than 24, 48 hours without exercise, I can't function. How did you do come to love working out? I started when I was in um, in college. There's a friend of mine said, come on, come to the gym with me. I'd never worked out in the gym before, really. I mean, I played sports. I was a soccer player, skier tennis but i never worked out and then i started working out and i loved it absolutely loved it and now i'm like and i do a lot of different stuff now i do pilates i do like today i did yoga for half an hour and you know but i do weights i do my own body weight all that sort of stuff do you do that thing where you hook your fingers together and you're oh like isometric thing is that what they call it yeah I just uh, I only no, know I it from movies from no. 1960, yeah, I but I those, imagined yeah. it immediately. Yeah, I don't do that. When you said your own body yeah. weight, I yeah. immediately no, assumed I'm you meaning were... push-ups, pull-ups. You were doing Charles dips. Atlas exercises. Yeah. yeah, I remember those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the idea of you in a hotel room doing one-arm push-ups yes, and right. then yeah. doing those things where you push yeah. the heels of your hand together yeah. to yeah. increase your bust. No, I, I don't do that. No. It's the key, though, when I stay in a hotel, the key thing is if the gym, it has to have a gym. Or, it, like in Italy, a lot of times the hotels we stayed in might not necessarily be the best hotels. And, you know, you, they, I would, you know, get them, to, like I would rent, like, a bench and just some weights and stuff like that because you have to do it. You know, because you're in a car all the time, you're traveling all the time, you're eating stuff, you're drinking wine. And you just need to do it because you you won't look good. You won't feel good. What's the point? You mentioned that you had cancer. Mm -hmm. Your therapy and recovery involved a long period where not only your ability to taste was reduced and changed dramatically, but also your salivary production was reduced dramatically, so it was hard to eat foods. It was hard to physically swallow food. Mm -hmm. You eventually recovered from that. Was the recovery complete? No, it'll never be complete. So I still can't, um, there are still, like if I eat a croissant, I eat it very slowly. And sometimes I just dip it in coffee because I can't, or I have to keep, drinking water or whatever after I take a bite because I don't have enough saliva to make it work. And sometimes what happens is, it happened to me the other day, 
was eating something. I literally almost choked, <laughs> choked to death because it just didn't. I took too big a bite of something, like a sandwich or something, and it got stuck in my throat. And I thought, you know, and you were in public, and you're like, Jeez, now what do I do? And eventually, I got it down, you know, without spewing it all over the table. Um, so yes, it's a very common side effect of of hydrous radiation. Um, you know, and also the 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 mechanism doesn't quite work the way it used to work. You know, when you swallow, there are times where you just it can't because there's so much scar tissue in here. Like my neck is like it's like a rock. It, this is all scar tissue in here. So it, it's it's unfortunate. The good thing I can't eat any spice at all. It's excruciating. It's so painful because the mouth has been compromised so much. I had to have my teeth redone because they, you know, it damaged the teeth. They needed to be redone anyway, so. But, it, you know, there was damage to them. There was, it was just gross. Anyway, this is so boring. But, but yeah, it changed my life completely. So it is the, I think I'm probably at the point now where this is about as far as I'm going to get. I mean, the recovery, if the fact that I've gotten this far is great. I can eat, I can have wine with my family, I, I can um, cook and I can taste and smell even better than I did before. And that is probably the best gift. Why is that? Because I'm so much more, I'm so much more aware of food. I can, tell, like I can tell you what's in something that I never used to be able to. I could do it to a certain extent. But now it's like I'm hyper aware of it. And I, I talked to the doctors about it and I said, have you ever heard? And they were like, no. I've never heard of that. It's, it's just weird. It's like super smeller taster. When you had COVID, you lost your taste, right? I did for five days, and I, and I did everything I could not to, like, freak out <laughs> because I thought, oh, no, I can't go through this again. I mean, there are plenty of folks who lost their taste for I, a very long time or even significantly or completely permanently. Yeah, or completely, or, you know, or, or it compromised it. And, yeah. In fact, the woman who works with me, she still, after COVID, she has certain foods she eats. She goes, I can't eat that anymore. It tastes funny to me. It's weird. It must have been terrifying for you. I was terrified. You're like, oh, no, I have to come up with a whole new brand. I know. I was like, what do I do? And then I thought, no, it'll be fine. Okay. And after five days, it came back. Uh, and I wasn't even, I mean, the thing is, I didn't even, this is right at the beginning of the pandemic. So we didn't really know. And... And I wasn't sick. I got sick for like a day, day and a half. I didn't feel bad at all, really. It was a little like a, like you're getting a flu, but that I never got it. Well, I'm glad you got all of it back because I got to enjoy these great TV shows you couldn't oh, thank have made you. otherwise. Thank you. Um, and thanks for all your wonderful work as an actor. You're thank such you. a such a <laughs> gift. Oh, you're very kind. Stanley Tucci, known the world over as the Tooch. Catch him on Citadel. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime. Tucci's show, Searching for Italy, is just a really fantastic food and travel show. It is, let's say, not currently being produced. There's some hope it's not entirely canceled. Uh, but you can watch it on Discovery+. Plus. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. At our office, our colleague Marissa 
saw a car drive all the way onto the sidewalk and knock over an iron fence. Uh, but everybody was fine. No one injured, except the fence. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Dan just texted me a photograph of my business card from when this whole show was a one-man operation in my apartment in Koreatown. Uh, Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to Memphis Industries, their label. Uh, Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there, follow us. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.